Well, as you can see, uh, Pastor Matt is not filling the pulpit today. He's out of town. Um, contrary to popular rumor, it's not because he's sick uh, from being out too late at the midnight premiere of Star Wars. Um, that's, that's not a true rumor. If, if you hear that, you need to squelch that because it's not true. He, uh, he did go to that with us and enjoyed it, but he, he's actually on the retreat with the, college, or the, the young adult this weekend. He's teaching that, that retreat. So. so I am here, and what I'd like to ask you to do this morning is to open up your Bibles and uh, turn to the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. <clears throat> Luke chapter 15. We'll start at verse 1. And it reads uh, as follows. Now all the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one who is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep who is lost. I tell you, in that same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Would you pray with me? Father, I... Uh, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to hear from you, to, to look into your word, and to be listening to what your spirit would have us do and say and, and know. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would guide my tongue right now, my words. Lord, allow me to say nothing untrue, but allow me to speak that which is going to, to truly lead us uh, in the direction you would like, in the direction towards, towards seeing your, your purposes accomplished in our lives. Lord, just allow your spirit to come and fall upon this place and change us. We pray all this in your son's name. My senior year of high school, uh, I took an elective class, one of these you know, ones you get to choose. It was called Humanities One. Um, for those of you who may recognize what that is or don't, they, the class was basically set up as a way to teach us uh, high school kids about fine arts, um, painting, sculpture, architecture, these sorts of things from a historical perspective, not from a simply like hands-on approach like an art class where we're doing it, but from a survey kind of perspective where we're studying the various artists, the various sculptures that made a significant mark on our society throughout, this, throughout the years. And uh, there's a couple things that stand out to me as I, as I think back on this class, uh, on my experience in it. Sadly, the first and probably the most predominant thing that I think of is how much extra sleep I got. Um, that doesn't sound good, but before you come down too hard on me, uh, let me just give, give a little defense. It was my senior year, a very sleep-deprived young man. I was having a, a good time that year, had major senioritis. 7.45 a.m. class, uh, and what we would do literally is walk in the door, sit down, and he would then flip off every light in the room and put on a slide projector. So needless to say, it was a little brutal. It was great. I mean, in terms of if you were looking for a little extra sleep, it was great. But... Uh, 
don't come down too hard on me. Because the second thing that, that, I, that stands out about the class, in addition to the sleep-friendly environment, was that I, I did actually come away with at least some appreciation for the arts, come away with a, a, an understanding and appreciation for the history behind them. Um, you probably wouldn't know it by talking to me or looking at me, but I can actually go uh, to a museum, say the Museum of Fine Arts in Chicago, something like that, and, and I might just be able to tell you about a couple of the paintings, tell you where they, what their names are, who, who created them, you know, if that was a Monet or a Van Gogh, I might actually be able to do that. It wouldn't be very many, but I could probably do it. Um, and so I, you know, I, I do really feel like that was, was another thing I took away. Um, one of the more famous paintings that has always stood out to me um, since the first time that I saw it shown on the screen of, of that classroom in high school is Edward, Edvard Munch's The Screen. Um, I'm going to say Munch, M-U-N-C-H. If it's Munch and someone knows that, then tell me now because I'll change. I don't really know, but I'm going to go with Munch. Is it Munch for sure? Munch? Okay, thanks, Steve. I appreciate that. I, I went monk the whole first service, so th those people are just uncultured and didn't know anything. <laughs> but um, this, don't, please don't tell them I said that. But this, this work of art that, that you see on the screen um, has just always been very interesting to me. It's been very captivating. A number of people you know, are, are agreement on this. The colors that are used, um, the swirling strokes seem to just kind of draw on this intensity, this, this kind of feeling of just chaos and, and real struggle and pain, desperation. Um, so, you know, a lot of times people say they, they just get drawn in by this pain. Um, a couple things I think about it that, that really kind of are compelling, at least for me, when I, when I think about this painting. The first is the question that, that this painting kind of naturally draws out of people. Um, when the question that, that they see after, or they come to after, you know, looking at it is, What's behind the screen? What's behind that screen? What, who is this person? Why is he screaming? Someone in the first service, one of my junior hires, said it's because he's bald, which I didn't appreciate. But, um, but uh, you know, what, what is going on? Is, is this a scream of fear? Is it a scream of, of desperation? Over circumstances in their life, did they lose a loved one? Is their heart broken? Uh, you know, I, I think it just makes me naturally want to know also what was going on in, in the heart and in the soul of, of Munch. Munch? Munch? Munch. What was going on in the, in the heart of this guy that would cause him to paint this? That would, that would cause him to put that on a canvas? What, what was he feeling? What was he going through? So I think that's one thing. The second thing that's, that's kind of draws me in and is compelling about this painting is something that I think needs to be there but isn't. And that's the sound. The sound. If you think about it, this is a painting called The Scream, and when you look at it, you go, yeah, that makes sense. It's a guy screaming. But in my book, the most significant part of a scream is the scream, the, the audible ah! part of a scream. You know, the fact that you can hear it, and it, it resonates in your ears. That The scream is what really translates here. And... For me, it bugs me a little bit that, that I can't know what, what the artist had in mind when he drew this. What, what did the scream sound like to him? 
kind of, I guess, is maybe one of the things about this painting that's kind of cool is as the viewer, you're forced to kind of create your own screen, right? You can kind of throw in there what, what you think and you imagine it would have been like. Was it a, a small, tiny little scream like my wife would do? I always make fun of my wife because she's got this little mousy, ah, kind of scream. And, you know, or would it be a manly, ah, you know, a, a real from the gut kind of yell? Bottom line is, you're probably thinking at this point, okay, Jason, you're a little weird. And uh, it's just a painting, so let's let it go. But in reality, I guess I wanted to bring this up to you, bring this before you this morning, because I believe that there's, there's a metaphor for the church contained within this work that I, I think really speaks right to where we're at these days. Um, let me explain what I mean. Think for a second about what it's like to live as the church, to, to function, to minister as the church in American culture today. What's it like? Many, many of you in the room have no doubt heard or been told that we are living in a postmodern society. Postmodern society. Uh, if you have any understanding at all of, of what that label means, um, you poke your head around pretty much anywhere in pop culture, in our culture today, and, and you pretty much see that that's right on, that, that it makes a lot of sense. Um, all indications from sociologists, those who do this kind of stuff, suggest that postmodernism is not a fad. It's not something that has floated in a year ago and is going to be gone next year. Um, it's, it's something that has is, is been around a while and is, is getting more and more ingrained in our culture, in our society. Um, and in the midst of this emerging postmodernism that we're living in, there's a group of, of people that's quite large, consisting of anyone from college age to 20-somethings to 30-somethings, even the older folks who kind of apparently think like kids, thinking like the younger generation. They're, they're the future leaders of American society, the future people who will be given the, the keys to the car, as you will, and who are, according to both statistics and the word on the street, flocking in droves to anywhere but the church these days. They're rejecting any and all forms of, of organized religion. They're fleeing from the church, fleeing from what they perceive to be a dungeon of outdated, antiquated, narrow-minded beliefs that really are best to let be left to just rot away. Uh, as the church, we know we can't simply choose to just ignore this culture, ignore this, these postmoderns. We can't just... Let them, let them swing. We know that we're called to reach them. But our attempts to, to do so, in our attempts to do so, we're, we're finding some difficulty. We're finding that they, the, the, the things that, that we thought might draw them in, the contemporary cool programs, the, the Starbucks coffee, the electric guitars, the drum machine, they don't really have them flocking in the doors like we thought. And we're a little puzzled. Of course, we, this is not to suggest that postmoderns have found the answers to life outside of the church. Uh, we look at the fact that despite a, a never-before-seen level of modern comforts, of technological advances that our society is in, postmoderns are living in a sea of, of frustration, of fear, of, of pain and suffering. We're seeing literally millions of lives, uh, people being emotionally and spiritually just broken because of the choices they make or that others around them are making. 
In short, we can see the scream of our postmodern culture as a church. We can see it. But like millions who have puzzled over this painting over the years, as a church, we're having a, a pretty difficult time getting behind the screen, getting behind it. Yeah, we can identify that there's hurt. We can identify that, that there's need. But we're struggling to, to really find ways to truly reach this culture with the gospel, with the love of Jesus Christ. The thing is, I don't believe that this means we should fear. I don't believe that this means we should worry. As we're struggling to find our, our ministerial legs in this sea of change and emerging culture, I, I think we can look at this with a, with a level of hope, with a level of encouragement, and, and with a real eye for opportunity. And so this morning what I'd like to do is, is talk on that for a few minutes as we look at this postmodernistic culture. I'd like to unpack postmodernism a little bit for you help you understand what this culture is, is about. And then do so not just for some sort of intellectual exercise, not so we can feel smarter at the end of the day, not so that we can go to the mall with a new set of labels to put on people that we rub shoulders with, and not so that we can uh, you know, think our youth pastor may have some clue on what our culture is about these days. Really, why we're doing this, why, what my heart in this is, so that we can get to the more important, the more foundational, the more demanding question for the church, which is, how do we, as a church, and specifically RBC, how do we glorify God by reaching this culture with the love of Christ, with the gospel message? So let me, I guess, as a jumping off point, ask this question, maybe to start. How many of you in the room, show of hands or, or speak out if you like, would say, you feel like you have some sort of an idea of what postmodernism is. You would be able to define it or, or somehow suggest at least a, a rough sketch of, of what postmodernism is. Okay, a few of you. Yeah, there, was, there was a few in the, in the, the last service. In a very real sense, postmodernism is, is a particular worldview that, interestingly enough, is, is kind of largely defined by what it rejects or what it disowns. Um, the exhibit A in this would be its very name, post-modernism. It is a philosophy that suggests that we need to move beyond, or that there was a need to move beyond modernism, uh, which is basically, uh, most historians and scholars will suggest, was a worldview that kind of dominated Western thought for a good 150 years, maybe from as early as the Renaissance to as late as the, as the 1960s. Uh, early 1960s. Um, the modernist era, if you want to kind of get an idea of what modernism is about, essentially would be a, a thought or a, a worldview that says, knowledge reigns supreme. Uh, there was a, the, the, the idea was scientific empiricism, right? The idea that we can know and gain understanding of our world through the scientific method was kind of becoming the, the new and popular kid on the block in the modernist era, and, and enormous steps of progress and advancement were being made in, in society, in the fields of industry, in the fields of medicine, science, all these sorts of, of areas. Modernism was, was taking us places. And so there was really a good deal of, of positivism about the future, a, a thought that, that, there is so, that the, the best days are ahead, 
right? The best things are ahead for mankind. If you just give us enough time and enough chance to use our reason, to use our rationale, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get anything done. We'll get anything done. Postmodernism, kind of then, would be the mindset that started with the seeds of doubt and distrust during the turbulent time in the 60s and the 70s when society went a little bit rocky. And, and postmodernism degree, disagrees wholeheartedly with the idea of objective knowledge or truth. Um, instead, it's going to place a significant amount of emphasis upon our knowledge being seen and understood in, in terms of our own community, in terms of, in terms of our own community. Essentially, those things that you and I would call knowledge, those things that we would say we know here in America, for example, um, are simply the world as we see it. Simply the, the, the world from our lens, from our point of view. And we should not attempt or suggest that we can prescribe or maintain that, that this is some sort of universal or objective truth that applies to anyone else. Um, Different cultures will see the world different ways and have knowledge of it that looks different, but all these ways will work equally well, according to the postmodernists. Basically, the main rule of thumb is, is that, as you can see up there, the main rule of thumb for the postmodernist is the only time that we have the, the right to critically evaluate a, a truth claim is when it's our own. That's the only time, really, we can criticize a truth claim and a claim of objectivity. That's, that's it. If it's not from our own, it's not part of our own culture, we have no right to criticize. We have no right to suggest that someone adopt our mindset. Now, there are going to be some, maybe some of you in the room today, who are going to jump all over this. You're going to be ready to, you're, you're, you're holding yourself in your seat right now just to, to keep quiet because that's self-refuting, right? That doesn't hold. That's ridiculous. That's preposterous. No one could live that way. That doesn't, that doesn't work in practical terms in our world. I'm not going to argue with you. That's one of the main things that, that I went into my studies at Talbot was, was, to, was to learn and, and to study these types of things, these types of arguments, the, the, the understanding of reason and, and scripturing, and reasoning from, from God's word about objective truth claims. So I'm not going to argue with you. But the reality is we can argue till we're blue in the face, but the mainstream culture has adopted postmodernism. It's entrenched. It is there. Um, as much as it may be struggling in the university, it's thriving in the modern culture, in our postmodern world. It's like that old Palm Olive commercial uh, that some of you may remember with Madge, where she says, you're soaking in it. I don't know if you remember that with the, with the dishwasher, but folks, we're soaking in it, in postmodernism. It's, it's all around us. It's there. The first time you have someone look you right in the eye and, and say, well, that's your truth. Or, well, you don't understand, but this is truth for me. You'll, you'll know where you're at. You'll understand what, what we're talking about. So, since we're soaking in it, I'd like to, to provide, I guess, just a few more ideas, a few more understandings about this postmodernism culture, kind of give you a wide-angle view of how it looks what it sh- how it shows up for us. We've kind of seen the, the intellectual backdrop. Now let's look at what, how it shows up in our world, what it really comes, when the rubber meets the road, how it comes down. Uh, there's a couple of main things that I, I will try, kind of briefly go through here. Um, the first being, for the, for the postmodernists, 
because there's no objective truth, there's no real ability to arrive at objective truth, there's a real spirit of, of religious inclusivism. Another word being tolerance, the idea that, hey, I'll do my faith thing, you do your faith thing, that's good for you, mine works for me. We're all good, everybody's, everybody's probably got an equal road to heaven. If, if there isn't, we sure aren't going to figure out who it's going to be. So let's just do our thing. There's a real spirit of tolerance. And of course, at the, at the opposing end would be anyone who wants to suggest there is objective truth, there is one faith, there is one way that is correct. You're, you're on the fringe. You're considered outside. You're considered intolerant, narrow-minded, possibly a bigot, an exclusivist, right? Trying to keep everybody else out. Second thing that a postmodernist that you're going to see big time is, is a belief in creating their own meaning in life. Morality, these sorts of things. If, if life for me is all about the Star Wars premiere and standing in line for a whole day so that I get to be the first one to see that movie and I get to dress in my costume and my whole life is Star Wars, that's my meaning, all right? That's, that's my life. And, and who are you to say that that might not be the way to go about on a deeper level, we see this all about our, our, in, our, in our movies and in, in, in our music and in, in our the various media venues today. You look at movies today, so many are coming from this postmodern perspective. It's no longer about the guy in the white hat winning against the guy in the black hat. Now, movies are, are made up of, you make your own meaning. You decide what that story was about. Sometimes they're not linear. Sometimes they're random. Sometimes you have, instead of a hero, an anti-hero. The, the, the guy you end up rooting for is, is the bad guy, or at least is very, very flawed. And yet somehow you find yourself pulling for him. Very interesting the, 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 the way in which meaning now and good and evil and all these things are, are concocted and, and created for us. Another thing about the postmodern society is going to be a, a, a noticeable mistrust for authority, a noticeable ability to, to distrust those in, in, in the leadership. If you think about it, this is a society that has grown up with Saturday Night Live making fun of the president, right? Society that has grown up with, with a new media that is, that is unlike the days in the 40s and 50s where you, you rarely heard anything about the president, if anything, it was always good, to the president being ripped a thousand times a day in papers all across the country. There is a, a complete fallibility to leadership, and these people know that full well. They've been to the puppet show, and they've seen the strings. And they know that, and, and that's, there's a distrust there. A couple other things that you're going to notice about the postmoderns that, that show up in our world is a hunger for spiritual experience. While they want to do the objective truth not being there, and, and you can do your faith and I do mine, at the end of the day, for the postmodern, experience is huge. Spiritual experience is huge. To talk about God, to, to have cognitive knowledge about the religion is, is one thing, but at the end of the day, they wanted to have that experience. They want to know through experience. They want to have felt something, not just known something. And lastly, alongside this, the postmodern has a hunger to know and to be known. They're hungry for community. If you think about our world, it's a very isolated place sometimes. We sit behind computers, we, live, we work in cubicles. We're, we have an ability to function very much on a solo level. And it's created a, a generation of people who are, who are looking for community somewhere, anywhere they can find it. And when they leave, you know, we, of course, would, would have the church 
when they, when they don't have that option, where else do they go? Where else do they find that community? Anyone who will take them. Anyone who will accept them for who they are. Becomes their community. Becomes those relationships that they value. Now, as I said, I want to go beyond this, though, and just understanding the postmodern to answering the really important question, asking and answering, what will it take for us to reach postmoderns? What is, it, what, is it, what is needed for us as a church to, to stand up and to not just let this culture go away, but to stand strong and try to reach it for Christ? What's needed? There's some who will suggest, well, it's time to remodernize them. They want to go postmodern, we're going to remodernize them, all right? We're going to get them back to thinking. We'll tell them, hey, get with it. Wake up and smell the coffee. Wake up and smell the reality. This is, this is how things work. Get a clue, right? And they're going to argue modernism, argue the idea of, of objective truth until they're blue in the face. I certainly don't think that that is something that is all negative. I, as I, as you, if you know me at all, you know that I, I'm very much a proponent of rational thought, of arguing and, and using good evidence to support Scripture, to, using evidence from Scripture that, that stands for objective truth, that, that gives the idea that there can be truth to be known, to be found. But what I would want to suggest is that if we simply go about it with an argumentative streak, it's going to take, number one, a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of energy. And I think we're going to lose a lot of Christians, a lot of people who don't necessarily feel called to do that. That's not in their nature. What I'd like to suggest instead is something that I believe every one of us in this room is able to do today. I believe that every one of you has, has the ability, has the know-how, has what's, what it takes to reach postmoderns. Given what we've seen here, you have the ability to reach them. To, to, to impact their lives for the kingdom. I would suggest that this is going to happen through the mission of authentic relationships. Through the mission of authentic relationships. Not compromising who we are. Not changing and, and becoming, morphing into postmoderns ourselves, but, but taking who we are, being real with that, and engaging these people in, in an attempt to make a friendship attempting to reach them through a friendship, through sharing life, through doing life with them. I believe this is uh, seen very clearly in Christ. I think that, that, that he essentially emphasized this idea in Matthew 5 when he talked about going into the world as salt and as light. Salt and light is no good if it's all st- stuck in the salt shaker, if it's locked inside or hid under a, bush- a bushel. Right? The salt needs to get out. It needs to be in contact with that which it's seeking to purify. I think in the same way, Jesus is suggesting that we need to get out of the salt shaker. We need to, to be engaged in friendship and relationship. Now, there's going to be some who are going to argue. Someone want to grab that for air? So, some are going to argue that this isn't biblical. They're going to say, Jason, James 4.4, man. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Bam! There you go. Case closed. I'm not going to get involved in that. Friendship with the world. Hatred towards God. I don't want to be hating God. Right? I think I would want to suggest, though, that, that we understand maybe James 4.4 in a different light. I don't believe, if, if you look at verses like 1 John 2, 15-17, that, that 
are very similar to James. It's very clear in these passages that what is being said in, in friendship towards the world is not friendship that, that, that we disown friends and people, that we, that we turn away from them. I think it's the suggestion that we turn away from the sin and evil that is in the world that can drag us down. I think that is what James, John, they're calling us to when they call us to, when they suggest avoiding friendship with the world. It's the world according to sin, according to the ways of the world, not the people in it. Luke 7, Mark 2, these other places where Jesus is described as a friend of sinners. Right? It was meant to be a derogatory term. They, the Pharisees, they used it as a way of slamming Jesus. He took it as a compliment. He took it as something not to deny, but to embrace and to embody, to actively get in, in, in their doing. It's funny, I read Luke 15 at the beginning of the service. We love the, the parables here in Luke 15 of the, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son. These are great stories, right? Some of the, the, the ones we get taught as kids. But what's interesting is, do you realize the context that these are in? We read it in the first two verses of this chapter. The context of these parables is someone essentially slamming Jesus for being with the wrong crowd, for eating and receiving sinners. Jesus is saying, hey, you want to know the heart of the Father? And he begins with these parables. It's as if Jesus is trying to, to point out, hey, God values these people, and therefore I do too. And I will build friendships, I will eat with them, I will relate with them, I will do whatever it takes, because I believe that, that they have value. That as it says in verse 7 of that chapter, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, of course, it's obvious that we use wisdom. We use discretion here as believers. Uh, Scriptures such as bad company corrupts good character are great warnings for us, great things to keep in mind. Obviously, a new Christian is going to need to be careful with this kind of a ministry, with this kind of a missional relationship. There's going to be a, a need to be careful that you, that you don't walk into a situation where it's going to stumble you, where it's going to cause you to fall. Uh, and if that's the case, you know when that will be, and you need to back away from that. There's no need to go running into that. The Lord wouldn't, would not approve and, and endorse that. But to be honest, folks, I don't believe that's most of the problem for those of us who struggle in this area of, of maintaining relationships with non-Christians. I don't think we do it because we're afraid of stumbling. I don't think that's, that's what sh- causes us to shy away. If we're honest, if I'm honest, what causes me to, to refrain from, from building these kind of friendships is personal discomfort. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard. It's going to get messy. A couple, weeks, uh, a couple months ago, I got invited to play poker with my neighbor, two, two, two uh, condos down. He... Um, to give you a little indication of, of what this guy's name is, Tony. Love the guy. But man, this guy is a hard liver. The guy plays hard and parties hard. He's a Harley dude. He's, he lives that life to the fullest. He's, he's a, he, he just enjoys that. And I, I'm pretty sure by the time he asked me to come play poker, he'd already had five or six beers. And I knew, as I, as I considered, I, I considered whether I should go and, and join them that night. I knew that those guys, there was going to be an uncomfortableness. I thought... This could, be, this could be rough. These guys could be drinking. There could be swearing. There could be uh, inappropriate comments being made to the ladies. There could be all kinds of things that would make me squirm in my seat. Do I go? 
Should I, should I get into that? And as uncomfortable as, as I, I was and struggled with it, I just really sensed the Lord telling me, you know what, Jason? Yeah, there is going to be some messiness to this. It's going to get uncomfortable. But I'm calling you to love these people as, I, as my son did. I'm calling you to get into their lives, to show them that you're there for them, that, 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 that you're not just there uh, to lecture or to, to, to talk to them when they need repentance, but you're there to live life with them. You're there to love them. You're there to care for them and to be their friend. And the great news is I feel like I got connected with Tony that night and, and, and I, my relationship with him is deeper. You know, he hasn't come walking through the doors and, and received Christ yet. Does that mean he won't? I don't know. I don't know, but what I do know is that I'm, I'm having a part, and as Paul kind of talked about 1 Corinthians 3, I'm having a part in that, that watering and planting of the seeds. Maybe I'll get to be a part of, of the harvest. Maybe I won't. God causes the growth, and all I need to do is be faithful in my role. And it's exciting to me. It actually takes some of the pressure off. I think there's a, a question that, that you want to ask, and, and, and people want to ask is, what kind of friendship are you talking about, Jason? When you talk about friendship with, with the, my neighbor or my coworker, what kind are you talking about? I mean, really, it's, it's, it's like a friendship, but a friendship, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not really trying to, to become this person's friend. I mean, it's really got a, a, an end result in mind, right? I would wonder if, if maybe that's not the best way to look at it, uh, especially with a postmodern who is, is all about distrust, about wanting that authentic I think they can smell that a mile away. And I think if you go into these kind of relationships looking for it to be another notch on your Christian belt of conversions, I think you're going in with, with a wrong attitude that may backfire. I don't understand why we have this idea as Christians that we can't truly have a friendship with a non-Christian, that that somehow is going to taint us or going to cause us to, to, to fall away. Who's to say that, that, that a friendship can't be can't be tight. Maybe not as tight as we have here at the church, but a tight, good, solid friendship with a non-Christian. Why can't that be the case? I guess the way I think of it, I would want to challenge each one of us to ask the question, how many unbelievers would invite me to their birthday party in my life? How many unbelievers in my life would, would invite me to a party that they're having? Would invite me to a barbecue? Would invite me to their kid's graduation? That's friendship. And that's, I think, the level that is gonna, it's going to take to reach the postmoderns. Now, the, some of you that would answer that question with, yeah, I've got people like that in my life, I want to encourage you. That's awesome. And I want to encourage you to keep that up. You have, you have the opportunity through that friendship to, to, to bring life to that person's life, to, to introduce them to Christ. Who knows when it's going to come? Be praying for the opportunities. Be looking for the opportunities. If you would say that you're, though, one of the people that really doesn't have such people in your life, that, that that's not something you engage in, I guess my first thing that I would want to suggest is I believe you're missing out on a significant portion of the Christian life. We're called to seek and save the lost, to, to reach out, and I believe that, that if you stay in a holy huddle and play the Christian faith at church but aren't engaging your culture around you, I believe you're missing out. I believe you're, you're, you're falling short of, of what Christ calls us to be. And the question would be, okay, but then where do I find these friendships? Where do I go to get them? I don't seem to have any places in my life where I can, where I can get these kind of friendships. I would want to encourage you, it, it probably is a lot easier than you think. 
Of course, there's, co there's your work, there's your neighbors. But there's a lot of, of people that you could kind of create friendships with in your life if you just took the time and looked. A couple of examples I, I've always thought of and, and seen people do. One is this couple that they go to a restaurant. They go to it enough you know, times that it, it's, you know, they, they consider themselves frequent enough that they, can, they request the same server every time. They ask, can I sit at Wendy's section? And they've gotten to build a relationship with this, with this woman by being in their service. And, you know, there's been opportunities for them to say, hey, can, is there anything we could pray for you about? There's been chances for them just by going to a restaurant and, and having the same server to get into that person's life, to, to build a friendship, to build a relationship. Those of you who go to the supermarket, checkout counter, right? What if you went to that same person every single time? You, you picked one, one, one checkout person and made an effort every time to go to them, to say hi to them, to get to know their name, to start asking them how their day's going, asking them about things in their life, asking if you can be praying for them. There's opportunities like that all over the place, I think, if we will just open our eyes. My suggestion, my, my belief is that this is the way the postmoderns are going to get reached. I think if we wait for them to come through the back door, we're going to have a long wait. And I think we need to prayerfully engage in this kind of relationship, friendship building with a missional mindset. And I would encourage you to, to begin really seeking if the Lord might have you do this. If there might be people that He's placed in your life that there's a need for that friendship. That there's a need for you to get in there. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank You so much um, for the example of Christ. I thank You for what he showed us, by what he told us by the life he lived, about what the, the lost mean to you. And I pray that we would take that to heart today, Father. I pray that we wouldn't just let this slide off our heads and, and our minds and our hearts and, and go on about the way we normally do things. I pray that we would take this seriously and really examine your call to us to be reaching out, to have missional, authentic friendships with those in our world that you've placed there. God, just give us the ability to trust you the ability to, to be bold enough to start these and to continue these friendships. Lord, there's a generation that, that it needs you so desperately, that, that is hungry for some kind of connection to you. And Lord, we believe that we have that, and so I pray that you would give us the chances, give us the opportunities to reach them. We'll give you all the glory, Lord, and we pray all this in your Son's wonderful name. Amen.